really this focus on helping myself and other people sort of like bridge that beheadedness, that Mm. mind and body gap and help myself and others get in touch with these like fleshy, tender, soft parts of ourselves that have been hardened because of life. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano, printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. And print friends, you may have already heard this already, but... I have exciting news. I am hosting a print event, an in real life print event. I'm partnering with Print Austin and I'm bringing a month long printmaking celebration to Santa Fe, New Mexico called What Else But Print Santa Fe. The addition of this new kid on the block print fest means that this year you can apply for juried exhibitions in a two for one deal. Your application to the 5x5 exhibition or the contemporary print means you're throwing your hat in the ring to be shown at Print Austin and Print Santa Fe. The 5x5 exhibition features five works from five printmakers and is more of a deep dive into their practice, while the contemporary print is a larger survey full of the exciting things happening in the print world. This is a great way to get involved with your print community and get your work under the eyeballs of some influential print people. So check out the link for the show notes. The call is open now through November 1st. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, currently offering possibly the best thing to happen to relief printmaking, the Woodzilla Presses. Beautifully made in the Netherlands, these uniquely engineered presses perfectly combine superior craftsmanship and performance at a price that keeps them accessible whether you're a seasoned printmaking pro or new to the craft. Available across five sizes, Each Woodzilla press is precisely manufactured from heavy-duty steel and designed to apply uniform pressure without undue work or stress for the artist, and it still guarantees a beautifully printed result at every reveal. Check out these beauties through the link in the show notes. My guest this week is Julia Curran. We talk about death, bodies, mental health, gender politics in the print world, autoimmune disease, the American healthcare system, our disembodied culture, and what we can do about all of it. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get vulnerable with Julia Curran. Hi, Julia. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. It's going great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really pleased that we've got a chance to connect and that I'm going to get to learn a little bit more about your work. As I as I told you off air, the wonderful Carlos Hernandez tipped me off to your work. And so I'm really happy that he did. And so we can get together and get to know each other a bit more and we can share your story with Hello, print friend listeners. Oh, that's so sweet. Like I was also saying off air, it's such a delight and such an honor to be on this podcast. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Yay. So as you may know, if you listen to an episode or two, I always ask my guests to introduce themselves by way of the questions of who you are, where you are, what you do. Sure. So my name is Julia Curran. I am currently living in Los Angeles, California. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. My husband and I just moved out here a couple of months ago, loving it so far. And my background is in printmaking, but I make a lot of different things. I make paintings and like these mixed media sculptural altarpieces, but everything is sort of rooted in the practice of printmaking. Mm-hmm. And so you said you're from St. Louis. Yes. And what role did art play in that part of your life growing up in that city? I would say that, I mean, like a lot of different artists, like most artists really, and most people, let me take that back. Most people, I always made art since I was a child and I'm really lucky. I have the most wonderful, supportive, loving family one could possibly ask for. And so that was really nurtured in me from a young age. My parents were always very supportive and my 
drawings were around the house since <laughs> since I started making them. And my parents are also very creative people themselves. They would gut rehab houses and just make them really beautiful and they have a beautiful garden. And so, yeah, I feel like that's sort of where that terrain comes from. Mm, yeah. So the changing your world aesthetically and putting mm-hmm. aesthetic touches on it. Sounds like it was something that was, yeah, really intrinsic to just the formation of our young, young Julia. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then did you just always know you were like art school, that's where I'm headed? So I sort of have two different threads of where I have always known that I'm headed and that is making art and also practicing healing in some way. As a child, I really wanted to be a veterinarian, but then we found out that I was deathly allergic to cats, which is so oh, sad. No. Um, <laughs> so that didn't work out. But uh, but yeah, so those were sort of those are still sort of the threads that are running through my life. And I guess art has just always been a part of my of my life. And whether it was making angsty collages in my room as a teenager or <laughs> or like tagging tagging things in public with friends that was definitely something not anything too wild and crazy but a little bit and even like making mix tapes for people like mix CDs and then drawing really elaborate designs on the covers i went to a high school reunion a couple of years ago and i had forgotten about that and people actually came up to me and were like, oh, I still have this CD that you drew for me in freshman year. So that was really sweet. Yeah. So art has just always kind of been been there. And then printmaking particularly, I have sort of the same origin story that a lot of people have. I'm an undergrad. I went to Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. And Jim Jarib, who was the print professor at the time, was my drawing professor. And I just loved him. He was so such a wonderful professor and is, is such a wonderful person. And I was thinking about what I wanted my my major to be and my focus to be. And I was debating between painting and printmaking. And I went in the painting studio and the painters were a little standoffish. They're kind of working by themselves. No, no, no shade to painters because I'm also a painter. But then I walked into the printmaking studio and what do I see? I see a disco ball hanging from the ceiling. I see a taxidermied flying squirrel hanging from the ceiling. I see students standing on the table and (laughs) dancing because they had just like pulled a really great etching, you know, and I was like, oh, yes, these are my people. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, so this is where the party is. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, of course, like, like most of us, the community aspect of printmaking is what really, really drew me in. I love to get people together. I love to the act of gathering people and making something bigger than than each one of us coming together and and making big events or just acting really silly and the printmaking studio was a place that I could do that and have this really integral part in that community. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that that juxtaposition between the Again, no shade to painters who who do get thrown under the bus from time to time by printmakers, but yeah, that just that juxtaposition of the the kind of serious and imagine just like oil painting. Here we are in the the grand tradition of of Renaissance masters, and mm-hmm. and then a taxidermy squirrel. Yeah, I think that's that's really fitting to kind of exactly. show the the culture around both those the the mediums. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and so I'm really intrigued when you said that it's the two threads are are art making and practicing healing because I definitely feel like those two actions aren't mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. And I know particularly given some of the subject matter of your own work, I'm sure there's a thread through in that. I would guess that that practicing healing still shows up for you in the work that you do now. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you want to get there? Do you want to take the long route or the, do you want me to go right to it? Because there's, there's history yeah. and, and biography. Let's, let's take the scenic route. We're only at eight minutes. So we got, <laughs> we got time, Julia. Take, take me around the lake. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So we'll go around the lake. Our first stop is just to give you a little background of myself. <clears throat> And just sort of like my printmaking lineage, I have so many wonderful mentors, mentors, starting with Jim Jarab in undergrad. And then I had actually met Tom Huck of Evil Prince in St. Louis in high school. Our art teacher took our class there as a field trip. And it was one of the first times where I was like, oh, yes, like this is 
th- here's another artist who's there's like some crunchiness to it that, that's uh, also uh-huh. in my own work and he was so nice to us I was showing him my sketchbook and he's like oh that's cool you know just like very kind and so after I had found the printmaking studio in undergrad I thought hey I'm gonna try to go find that guy again and so I hunted him down through his gallery somehow his gallerist gave me his cell phone number and so I <laughs> <laughs> so I just straight up called him and I was I like, mean, as a gallerist, like I'm happy for you, but like slightly horrified. Like, that- well, I went to the gallery first, and I'm like, hey, I need a summer internship, and they're like, I don't know. They were just like, we don't need anybody, but you know who does? Tom Hook. And I'm like, okay, that's gotcha, so funny. I've gotcha. been trying to get in touch with him. They're like, here's his number. That's and- that's a little bit better than just like, oh, you want the personal contact information of one of our artists? Here you go, right, strange right, person. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Okay, okay, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> so called him, and Evil Prince needed an intern. And I showed up, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and I ended up working there for several years. Became a shop manager, and again talking about this experience of community. Evil Prince was this really, it was wild and crazy. And it was sort of like the wild, wild west. His shop manager was described as wrangling the shit tornado. And so (laughs) that was, it was really this exciting time. And what was so special about it is that with not a lot of resources, we were able to just make magic happen. We were able to make the impossible possible every day. So that was really special. And that was sort of like my entry point into the community of printmaking. Really, that's when I first learned about SGC was the one in St. Louis that we sort of like put on a parallel conference to at the same time, which was really fun. I saw Sean's Star Wars work for the first time and almost just it knocked me over. I was like, wow, this is (laughs) this is amazing. And the amazing Hancock Brothers. It was just such this great baptism into the print world. Yeah. And so After that, I actually got a Fulbright grant and moved to Paris, France, and again, sort of like continued that that path of like finding different printmakers. I worked with a wonderful artist named Marc Brunier-Mestas. I worked with a really cool screen print shop in Marseille called Le Dernier Cri Mm -hmm. and got to make really amazing screen prints. And yeah. I just a quick question because I, I, when I was looking at your website, I saw that you'd gotten the Fulbright and got to spend that time in Paris. Did you find that same level of community in Parisian shops? Like, could you just show up and say, hey, I'm a printmaker? And the doors were open and they they pour you a coffee or I guess a brandy, depending on what time of day it is, and <laughs> welcome you in? Is it there? So I I found that. I didn't just walk into shops. I actually, John Hancock put me in touch with Mark Bruni Mistas, mm. who's an artist working out of a town called Clermont Ferrand. And he's just this really trippy guy. And so he was really wonderful and welcoming and invited me to come and stay with him and make some work with him. And I didn't even know what this guy looked like. I just hopped on a train <laughs> and went down. I'm like, I hope he's, hope he's nice. Hope he's <laughs> chill. Yeah. <laughs> cool, right. And I showed up at the train station, had no idea who I was looking for. And then I see this guy who's more or less bald and has a really, really long braided gray goatee and then really long black pinky fingernails that were painted black. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this guy, this has to be him. <laughs> And so through him, I met all these other wonderful artists, both painters and printmakers and illustrators throughout France. And Mark and I actually put on a traveling exhibition showcasing French, American and Mexican printmakers. And we got a grant and we were able to have a couple of different shows. And at the same time, Ryan O'Malley and John Hancock, Tyler Krasowski, John Hancock's wife, another guy named Big Lou, they were all in Europe for the Printmaking Inn Festival in Estonia. And so they came, we were able to sort of like invite them as visiting artists and we just all traveled around and, and had that really great feeling of international print community there. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear because I've... I've experienced it in Thailand before, just awesome. showing up when, when Tim and I were living there. I had had some connections there from the work I'd done with Kitty Kong Pila Kwatanotai up in Chiang Mai and Cap Studio. So we had a bit of an in, but even then, the Thai printmakers were always just so excited just to welcome us, just to have warm bodies in the shop who share the passion <laughs> and... Thai is a very difficult language for someone who who grew up is English is a native language. 
so we didn't speak very much of it and they didn't speak a whole lot of English, but you know, that, that wonderful experience of bonding over a printing bed Mm -hmm. and you don't need very many words to go through someone's flat file with them. And it's such a nice, nice way to feel really universal human connections with people who have kind of chosen this off the beaten pathway to be in the art world. And so it's, it's just every time I hear another place that can welcome printmakers under that umbrella of just shared community and this sort of shared bondage of print, it makes me happy. So I'm really, I'm glad to hear that you had that experience in Paris and being able to, to, to spot another misfit at the train station like that. Yeah. (laughs) And really like that, that theme of connection, that's really, that's what has guided me throughout my career is as an artist and printmaker. Speaking of Ryan O'Malley, he's one of my dear beloved mentors. And I actually chose to go to grad school at Texas A&M Corpus Christi specifically to work with Ryan, which was a great choice. And this is sort of like where that healing thread comes back in. So like a lot of us, I had a really rough time in grad school. It was, mm-hmm. it was a good time. Like I learned a lot. It was, it was like a very hard earned period of, of personal growth. And during this time, I was really, really ill. I have an autoimmune disease called ulcerative colitis that I've had since I was a child. And in the past, I would just sort of like go, it comes and goes in flares. And so mm-hmm. in the past, I would have a big flare. I would kind of like put my head down, get through it, get over, take a bunch of steroids, take a bunch of medicine, almost have to have really horrible surgery, but get through it and then stuff it all back down and be like, okay, I'm fine and continue. And so this happened again in Corpus Christi. And so I experienced the stress of grad school and then also being really ill and not really having great access to medical care and Mm -hmm. doctors. And this was really where I decided that I had had enough and that that this process of sort of stuffing everything down, putting my head down and moving, just like plowing through things wasn't actually serving me. Mm. So at this point, I started working with a naturopathic practitioner in addition to a gastroenterologist and really opened up my view of of health and also Mm. the difference between like a quick fix or trying to quote unquote cure something that's considered incurable and healing. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really, it was a very intense time. It was sort of this (laughs) long, long process that required not only like a reevaluation of like what I was eating and and just like lifestyle and, and things like that, but also like my connection to my own body. This experience really, it, again, it was like a several years long process and it really sort of allowed me the space to reconnect mind and body and, and uh, emotions and, and feelings and, and, mm. and cognitive aspects. And also it made me realize how our society is, is really disconnected, disconnected mentally and, and physically. Have you read the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel mm-hmm. van der Kolk? Right. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's oh, a yeah. bestseller for a reason. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so in the book, he talks about how we live in a dangerously beheaded society. And that, that really resonated with me. So I wasn't making work about this in grad school. I was still at the point of like, you know, no, I don't want to talk about this. It's either too personal or it's not interesting. No one cares about me. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to make like work about big, important things. And it was, that wasn't the right choice. (laughs) It wasn't the way to go. And so after grad school, I really sort of gave myself the time, like a couple of years to just process that whole experience and then started making work that was sort of combining those, those two, those two threads, like the art and the healing. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much in there (laughs) and that, in that whole story and so much I, I really connect with and really admire you taking on making work about because in the United States of America, it is sort of an unpopular opinion that we should pay attention to anything from the neck down. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't know if it's puritanical. I don't know if it's sociological, if it's some combination of both, 
but it's capitalist, this sense of it's capitalist, white it's, yeah, everything. it's patriarchal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's all of these big systems in play that, of course, are, are rooted in like the particularly horrendous history of the formation of this country. And it's seeing bodies as like a a means of production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and, and that's like a like a amalgamation of like different separate parts. When in fact, mm. that's not how our body works. Right. <laughs> all of our systems are connected. We are all connected to each other. We are connected mm-hmm. to our environments, et cetera, et cetera. Totally, totally. And and that that particular way that we have this relationship with bodies and health of like, if your body can't be the perfect capitalist worker, it is your fault. It is because mm-hmm. of the decisions that you've made in your life. And therefore, we don't need to take care of you. So Mm -hmm. it's like as soon as you sort of, for one reason or another, fall out of peak production, then you have no value. I mean, it's it's something that you can see in a lot of the attitudes around the the COVID-19 restrictions. I mean, it came it came really, really forward and all of that and the and the dialogues that people were having very publicly and without shame about like, oh, only old people are dying. Only people right. with this BMI are dying. Like right. that, this sort of thing. That's just like they, they're not, they're not falling into my perception of production. And so therefore I don't need to feel responsible for them just as another human being. Right. And that's the problem with ableism is that one day we'll, if we're lucky mm-hmm. enough, we'll live long enough to experience disability. Yeah. Yeah. And so and, it affects us all. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's truly like you you either get hit by a meteor at at, at twenty-eight or you will see your level of production go down, you know. And and so yeah, so I, I, I really connected with what you're you're writing about your own work when you were touching on those those points because it's it is a huge issue. And as you said, it, it has these threads into to other major destructive forces mm-hmm. in our in our country and, in, and of course, in, in global perceptions as well. And so I guess I'd be really curious to hear a little bit about how, as you said, you realized that you were in the space to start making work about it. And art can be such an intellectually driven process. Art can exist, even though the physical making for most works of art, it happens with the body. The perception and the dialogue and the culture around the ways in which your production is going to be sort of received often happens from the neck up. Mm -hmm. So what was your process when you were like, okay, how do I take on getting at this concept that's very obviously important and personal and also sort of knowing there might be a little bit of an uphill battle in terms of the way in which people receive art objects. Well, I started by just trying to allow myself to make bad work. Uh, And I made a bunch of, like, I made a bunch of bad work for a really (laughs) long time and got that out of my system. And I, but I also feel like every, everything you make is, is a step towards something else. So yeah, so making a bunch of bad work was a big part of that. And doing a lot of writing, my sketchbook is just absolutely, completely chock full of writing, connecting personal experiences to to more universal experiences and how the personal is political and, and vice versa. So that definitely plays a big part in my practice. And also, I want to say teaching has been a big part mm. of this as well. I've been adjuncting for for quite a long time now and have found that 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 can also be a spiritual practice just like art where mm-hmm. where you're I feel like art art and and human connection really art and meaningful connection whether that's through teaching or because I think teaching can be healing too I think that that can be like a homecoming that can help us get in touch with this this untouchable part of ourselves that makes us feel alive. And, and that's really profound. And so teaching has also been in, in really connecting with others has been a big part of my process and really this focus on helping, helping myself and other people sort of like bridge that, that beheadedness, that Mm. mind and body gap and kind of help 
myself and others get in touch with these like fleshy, tender, soft parts of ourselves that have been hardened for because of life. That's such a a beautiful way of putting that and something I really I really connect with and and how I feel like my personal arc has mirrored that coming of age and the society as someone who's socialized female Mm -hmm. and showing those soft squishy bits being shut down Mm -hmm. or attacked or undermined over and over and over again and then I think a natural survival mechanism as you say is to harden those because you're like well every time I've shown this it's hurt so I can't do that anymore and then is entering my mid-30s to late 30s recovering those that that process of saying like oh these have been buried but they're a part of me that's a very important. And how do I now show them to the world in, in a way that keeps all of us safe or in a way that's okay with it not being safe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did, what, is, what is your process around that? Well, I definitely look to others who have done that before mm. me for, for strength and inspiration. Definitely women surrealist artists, Louise Bourgeois, Frida Kahlo, mm-hmm. even though she didn't really like being considered a surrealist artist, Leonore Carrington, <laughs> Eileen Agar, Remedio Savaro, like these are artists who also were, were touching on the same subject and like really thinking about intuition <clears throat> and archetype and myth. And, and so that, that definitely is, is a big part of that process as well. Doing a lot of meditation, doing just yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Doing yeah. a lot of writing and sketching. I do a lot of sketching. Mm-hmm. I try to just sketch out whatever idea I have and then put it away and then I come back to it and I'm always combing through my sketchbook for little nuggets. But yeah, that's definitely definitely a part of that process as well. A lot of reading, a lot of listening. I listen to so many podcasts in my studio all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you have any recommendations for podcasts that sort of touch on this? If someone's hearing yes. this and they're like, oh my God, Julia, you're you're blowing my mind right now. How do I how do I begin to get in touch with this? What do you listen to? So my favorite podcast to listen to is On Being with Krista mm. Tippett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, if you're just starting on that one, I think they have like 20 years behind them yeah. as a radio program. And so you can't go wrong. And what they do is they really just touch on the essence of like what it means to to be, to exist and to be alive <laughs> in our human forms. And they talk with astrophysicists and physicians and artists and poets. And yeah, that's definitely, definitely something that I'm playing all the time. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I listened to it as well. And and they actually released the unedited version and the edited version at the same time, which is really interesting. Because if I'm in love with Mary Oliver, and you get this whole experience of it all being edited. And then I loved it so much when I went back to listen to it again, I listened to the unedited version. And you hear like, Mary being like, kind of prickly about like where they're setting up the room and it's just it's just so interesting because then you get this other element of it as well and yeah that's that's a beautiful one for sure yeah yeah and so in terms of how these explorations show up aesthetically in your work what kind of imagery do you draw on and how is it interacting with its environment to start to get into the messy, squishy, emotional bits. So right now I'm making a series of paintings. I actually was just at a really great residency called Wasaic Project in New York this summer. And in a couple of days, I'm heading to another residency called Gentel in Wyoming. And so I've been making all of these studies of these mother nature monsters. And so sort of these like, these, these, how do I want to describe these? They're they're these female figures. Sometimes they're sometimes they're not necessarily one gender, and they're sort of godlike, but they're not benign. They're not entirely mm-hmm. benign. And I'm thinking a lot about like natural cycles of life and death and life, and 
thinking of how these these mother nature monster figures sort of personify they're enacting these cycles so you see them underground you see them consuming detritus you see them you see them making weather happen you see them interacting with with different systems in nature and so i'm really playing around with like the what a friend of mine just described as the earth to body stretch, sort of this <laughs> transformation between where where our bodies begin and end and where, where the external world begins and ends. And yeah, so I'm really thinking about that. I'm really thinking about like texture and also, hmm. I guess, incorporating printmaking processes into painting. And so for the past two years or so, I've been making these sculptural altarpieces that have doors that open and close very like Bosch-like and using a lot of collage. And so using screen prints that I made and woodcuts and cutting back into them and collaging them into these paintings. And I'm definitely a maximalist in my aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And so right now I'm practicing the act of holding back a little bit. So instead of having texture everywhere, thinking about like selective texture with paper and selective color and yeah, just trying to play with restraint a little bit. Mm, Yeah. As you were talking, it occurred to me that especially with bodies, that connection between, you know, creation, of course, is in there. As you said, you phrased Mother Earth, right? Like this idea of... Mother Nature monsters. Yeah, Mother Nature monsters. There you go. Yeah, yes. Like Mother Nature and the creative force of of the uterus Mm -hmm. and how it is still so messy too, right? The conception is messy. Birth is messy. And that messiness of the human body is something that we're so desperate to deny. Mm -hmm. So for me, Mm -hmm. there's something in there about that connection between the process in which the human species reproduces and multiplies Mm -hmm. And the denial of the essence of the bodies that create it and the essence of the bodies that are then born. It's just, it's a weird thing where it's like life only happens, truly happens within like these few sterile years, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Right now, I just completed a painting that's that's one of these Mother Nature monsters that's living below a lake, and she's drinking the lake, and then she's peeing out lava, and it's going mm. up on the sides and coming out as two volcanoes. And so I'm trying to connect like what we consider abject that are just normal bodily functions to these like these natural cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that that has a connection a bit to performance art, which I know you've also dabbled in I, I've seen some some products of of more performative elements of your practice but you know that my my husband is also an artist he's, he's got his MFA and so we go to art events and we see performance art and with again no shade to performance on it we're always like fluids and self-harm there it is again but the, it's like but I think that's one of the things that like performance art is like is like spit is gross only once it leaves your mouth like like you where it starts to sort of question the way in which we we interact with with bodies when of course bodies are the the medium through which the art's being produced so I think this is a great opportunity and a great segue a, a long form segue to say tell us a little bit about the the performance aspect of of some of your practice sure so it's been a long time since I've done performance I really only dabbled in it in grad school but it was a really special time so my MFA thesis exhibition in 2015 again a long time ago seven years ago was was like a, a community affair and so it was this this humorous satirical work about toxic masculinity and it involved these half men half donkey figures the origin story behind that is that when I turned 18 as a joke my friend gave me like a play girl magazine which uh-huh. is very silly and heteronormative and just just very silly and the centerfold was called party boy and it was <laughs> This man sticking his dick into cakes and a pin the tail. <laughs> the game and it I was mean, too- can I think of anything hotter? I don't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> endless jokes with that one. And so I took some of that imagery and created this this character called Party Boy, and he sort of represented these different hypermasculine, toxic masculine tropes. 
And Ryan was encouraging me to to consider performance art and make it come alive. I made like this big 20-foot painting that's, again, is very Bosch-like. And I was able to convince eight of my graduate school friends to each take on a different persona of party boy, like this different uh, toxic masculine persona. So we had like the frat boy, we had the roid rager, we had the warmonger, we had Lars Roeder was wearing a golden Speedo and burst out of a cake. And it was... (laughs) Lars, the ultimate party boy. Yeah. Lars, the ultimate party boy. Yeah. And so it was really a lovely experience. I don't know if it was good performance art, but it was was a wild Mm -hmm. time. We had a lot of fun. There was a ton. We, like Ryan O'Malley, put together like this printmaking event that weekend. So there was a lot of people in town. The gallery was totally packed. It was at this great space in Corpus Christi called K-Space. They're wonderful, wonderful people who run that gallery. And uh, yeah, we just we pulled it off and it was, it was really fun. (laughs) And leading up to that, like, since the work was really ambitious, like this really huge painting, it was all screen printed collage material that I had. I mean, I just would have like weekly print parties in the print shop and I'd buy everybody beer and pizza and we would, everyone would screen print with me and cut out all these collage pieces and make masks. And it was like, that's again, going back to this idea of community and printmaking. It Mm. was just so, so much fun. Yeah. So again, I don't know if the, if the performance, if that's something I'm going to continue at least that piece, but the experience was great. It was, I love bringing people together to do silly things. And that was really, really a lovely time. Yeah, and it's it's I I could see it finding its way back into your practice just because of the the nature and the the embodied nature of your work and the corporeal experience that mm-hmm. performance it's a mischief be, as know? well. The, yeah, the, there's there's yeah the the moxie and the playfulness and, yeah, and all of absolutely. that energy for sure. I'm curious if you've ever thought about not that the the. This is this is so this is this is me like trying to bring like these threads together into this idea I was sort of having about your work and I hope it I hope it makes sense but it has yeah, to do with sort of like bodies and the the messiness of the existence of bodies and both in their their reproduction and also in their decay and in mm-hmm. their their ability to hmm yeah so so yeah so it has to do with like like the bodies and how it's like anything they do that involves creation is messy or reproduction Mm -hmm. is messy and that's sort of what the the body does whether it's growing pubic hair right like oh no like the body's off doing something right now like Mm -hmm. or or sex or death or various labels areas of disability that as you said is an inevitability with those of us who are lucky enough to age and somewhere in there that I'm trying to get to that's been floating around in this this amniotic sack of my (laughs) my mind right now is is printmaking as reproduction and printmaking as messy and printmaking as a means of reproduction Mm -hmm. that gets complicated and uncontrollable yes yeah (laughs) I love that I'm stealing that for my next proposal I write thank you oh okay (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so it just it just seems sort of fitting that part of the your process really involves this this methy methy method of reproduction. Yeah, as well. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I love that you pointed that out cuz that is that is what's so what's so fun about printmaking like the actual process is is the experimentation mm. and and trying different avenues and and making a mess. And yeah, I have definitely been told a few times that I need to clean it up when I'm printing (laughs) fingers all the time. But yeah, that's, that's a really great connection between those two. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad I was like, I said, like, I didn't even have a question, but it just was something that my brain couldn't let go of when thinking about coming to understand your practice and, and thinking about how it's happening. So I'm excited to see the next project, the the printmaking reproduction. (laughs) (laughs) So I think as as I mentioned to you when I first sent you the email that we're doing this Outlaw October in the Hello Print Friend universe. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I feel like the outlaws were 
a side of the printmaking culture that I became aware of pretty early on in my own indoctrination into contemporary printmaking. Mm -hmm. It's something that I think is, is, as I've come to understand, has to do with taking printmaking out a bit of its, from its like academic ivory tower. Yes. Is sort of the strongest definition I could think of. But as someone who is on the official list of outlaw printmakers, that which, which as far as I know exists on the Wikipedia page, I don't know how else to find it. What does it What does it sort of mean to to you to to be under that umbrella and and what you think of as having being a part of of this side of contemporary printmaking? Since one of my first experiences in printmaking was working at Evil Prints for a long time and getting to work with some of my favorite artists like Dennis McNed and John Hancock and Sean Starwars was is great. You know, that that feels really good because I appreciate their aesthetics so much. And I love the way that you described it as like getting printmaking out of the ivory tower of academia. No shade to academia or, or learning, but traditionally printmaking is something because of the expense and, you know, and just the cumbersomeness of it that it it has an easier time existing in institutions than outside of them. And so what I love about the outlaw printmakers in that spirit is making making the impossible possible, making mm. making printmaking happen outside of an institution. And I'm all about being outside of institutions. So that, yeah, that part feels really good. I don't know. I don't really like I feel like a very peripheral part of that group. So what we were saying earlier about the outlaws, like this this sort of like anti-institution sentiment is, oh man, I don't know if I want to even say anti-institution, like, because like we're at a moment of crises where we need trust in institutions. Right. But, like, <laughs> but you know, like not necessarily, like questioning if rules are, 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 are like serve us or not and sort of like existing outside of a norm. And really when you think about it, like existing outside of this like Judeo-Christian norm like th that is part of of the outlaws and what makes them so special and what makes me happy to be associated with that movement but it's true my work is a lot different i have a diff couple different thoughts about this first like that that like rebellious spirit like that's something that's really strong within me and and like that mischievous spirit is something mm. that's really really strong within me and within my work and so that's one way that i really resonate with res resonate with that like young essence as you're saying or like that that typically considered more masculine part that's definitely like a, a part of me as well and i also feel like i jokingly say this after working at evil prince for many years i'm not cut out to work for anybody let's just mm -hmm. say it like that yeah. i'm only cut out to work for myself i devote my life to molding it around my freedom never working for anybody but especially never working for a man ever again and so sometimes i feel like like what i've been able to do in my work is sort of like take this really wonderful like rebelliousness that I sort of that's my printmaking lineage and and turn it into my own without mm -hmm. yeah and turn it into my own like I mean I feel like my work always has a thread of like making fun of toxic masculinity and I definitely a couple times that I have shown with the outlaw printmakers in different panel talks I have been able to like humorously comment on some of the gender dynamics that were happening that weren't necessarily necessarily like balanced mm -hmm. <laughs> to put it nicely while still like embracing like the wonderful parts of the outlaw printmakers and so yeah so I feel like my own work yeah I, I don't know if I answered that question correctly. yeah yeah for sure and what actually sort of is occurring to me is that I think when people are critical of the outlaw printmaker ethos mm -hmm. it has to do with some of the things we've we've talked about like the the perception of toxic masculinity the perception of the boys club that kind of thing and there's Catherine Polk there's Erica Walker there's Suko there's there's other amazing other women artists who amazing amazing so amazing much. artists I have a wall behind me if you can see yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> I do recognize it actually yeah and so I I think like when we're talking about like 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 traits that are considered like typically masculine or typically feminine. Like, I mean, it's 2022. Come on. I think we all, mm -hmm. we, we should all don't know by now that we can embody many different, many different traits and not have to have ourselves or our, as artists, our work be like, quote unquote, feminine or quote unquote, masculine. And so 
I feel really good about like, like sometimes like my work is a little aggressive. And even though it's about these about like greater topics of like, it, of like finding that like softness and like embracing like our, our, our fleshy and an abject existence, like the, my work is not benign. Like it's not, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not benign. There's like, there's an element of revenge in these figures. Like a print I recently completed at Graphic House in St. Louis is one of these mother nature monster figures who's literally underground and then eating corpses out of out of coffins and then mm-hmm. shitting out their bones and then like <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like new plants that are growing and so like that is like that image is is a bit aggressive but at the same time I like I feel like the moment we're living through is 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 aggressive in yes. so many ways. and I feel like the antidote to that is is like getting more in touch with like allowing ourselves to be soft, mm, allowing ourselves mm-hmm. to be soft through connection and through beauty and, and yeah, and em- embracing that aspect of ourselves. I believe that human beings want connection and I believe that oh, printmakers want connection and that sometimes those of us who wear the strongest armor are those of us who want it the most. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. 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 Mm-hmm. Those of us who wear the strongest armor are those of us who want and need connection the most. Absolutely. And I yeah. also wanted to mention too, when we're talking about our soft and squishy bits and, <laughs> and like this tenderness, I feel like that's also where strength lies in in embracing that part of ourselves and in in embracing each other as well. Yes. Recently, when I was in Wasaic, I had the God, it was this amazing time. It was like being an adult art summer camp. And I had two fabulous roommates, one who's a printmaker, Joanna Cumborian in Australia, and another who's a sculptor named Lauren Ruth. And we were like, we would just like sit down and have nights where we like fleshed out each other's artist statements. And when we were Mm. talking about my work, I, so I kept saying like, like sometimes I feel a lot of shame about my work and because I, we all do, but because I I have this like this this a part of me that has this fear that I'm always too much. I talk mm. too much. I need I have too many needs. I need connection too much. My work is too much. And so that's like that like when we're really getting into to like the, these vulnerabilities and these tender parts of ourselves. When I was having this discussion with my fellow artist, the conclusion we came to was to find that part of you, that little part of you that you feel shame about and that makes you feel really like you just want to throw up and you want to whatever exit your body and and leave the room to follow that and use that as a guide in your work. And that is where the strength will come from. Mm. And so I'm trying to like be like, day- and scene. Like, I don't like, there's nothing I can add to that. It's perfect. <laughs> but I feel like that's, that's for me, like, that's like that to me is a daily practice of my work. And, and that's what I was saying. Like, it's also, that's like where art for me is also this really spiritual practice because, you know, it's me, it's for me, my art practice is visually processing internal work if that makes sense not only internal because I don't want to make it sound like it's like all art therapy because it's not but it's like visually in process it's visually processing both internal work and external connections if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and actually something I wasn't sure if I was going to mention or not but like thinking of these two paths in my life of 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 art and healing I actually am currently going back to school to become a therapist in private practice. Shut the um, front door, so am I. Yeah. No, wait, what? <laughs> no way. Oh my God. You're going to be so good. You are going to be so good. <laughs> so are you. Shut up. <laughs> I love that. Oh my God. I love that. I, girl, I am so fucking sick of being an adjunct teacher. It's like being an Uber driver professor. Yes. I'm over it. And that's half of my job is like, hey, why oh. are you today? Oh, okay. All right. Let's get you to therapy. Let's get you to the academic resource center. Let's get you to the food bank. Uh, I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to go make some money and be a therapist. <laughs> oh my God. That's so, like, I haven't talked about it on air at all because I've worried people are going to be like, oh no, she's exactly. not going to be in the arts, right? Exactly. But it's like. Exactly. I, you're the first, like, n- like, person in the art world that I'm telling that's not like Ryan O'Malley or Lisa <laughs> Chavez. <laughs> 
And so one of the things like when you were talking about connection that I wanted to say is like the parts of ourselves that we hate the most, that we have the most shame are the gateways into connection with people. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I just was like, like, it's like, because there's nothing, there's nothing stronger than vulnerability, right? I was teaching this class at Webster University in St. Louis, and I was invited by one of the professors who's been there a long time. Her name is Carol Hudson. She's a gem of a person. Oh my God, she's a performance artist and and drafts person and paint. She does everything, and so she's been teaching this class called Creative Strategy for thirty years, and mm. she was kind of ready to step back from it and wanted to hand it off to like she wanted to handpick who she hands it off to. So she approached me and then one of my colleagues who's an excellent painter named Marissa Addisman, and she approached both of us and she was like, hey, I want you guys to teach this class. And what it is, is it's it's hard to describe. It's been described as bungee jumping for your brain, but it's like a foundations <laughs> class for freshmen that's all about, I don't want to say it's art therapy. So Carol is also an art therapist and mm-hmm. a professor. And yeah. so this class, it's not art therapy, but it's it has that as it's, it's, its foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's all about like, how do you, how do you like come up with like good ideas and good content by like allowing yourself to be vulnerable in your work. Mm. So we do like, and and what's exciting about it is that every semester, the goal is that 50% of the course has to be completely new. And so it's like a lot of work to teach, but it's also really fun. Like I became best friends with my colleague, Marissa, because of teaching this class together. And we do like all sorts of different wild assignments. And we also do like improv theater exercises. Like we're looking at Augusto Boyle's Theater of the Oppressed and like how to like think about Mm -hmm. power dynamic through improv exercises. And it's like very like it's very much about getting in your body and 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 like building resilience, I want to say. And so teaching that class like that was such a such like a formative experience for me in merging like my art practice with this interest I have in 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 healing and I think mm-hmm. that when you're a professor and when you're an art professor healing can take the form of helping people find their voice and yeah. helping people find like a, 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 a safe space to be themselves I can't tell you how many times I've had students in other classes come to me with like a whatever like a crisis happening in their lives or crisis of identity or any sort of experience like that and I'm like why don't you come you know why don't you come to the print shop or or whatever come and hang out in whatever class I'm in usually I invite them to the print shop and then it becomes this this great supportive nurturing community space where people can blossom into who they really are and so being able to experience that in my years as a professor, both teaching printmaking and teaching even just drawing, I teach drawing from the from the perspective of like, hey, like we're not Rembrandt here. We don't care about that. Like we're just going to get in our bodies and witness and observe. That really led me to this choice during the first pandemic lockdowns of like, I just can't be a part of this exploitative system of adjuncting anymore. It's not like I can't mm-hmm. do this my whole life. And I don't even think I want to be a full-time professor. Like it wasn't happening for me. I put out a bunch of applications and I think it wasn't happening because I don't actually want it. And so I made the decision to, to, to sort of in what I consider like continuing that aspect of my art practice and become a therapist. And I said this earlier, like this is part of like my goal as an artist is to build my life around my freedom. And not only my freedom, but also the freedom of others as well to build my life around freedom, whether that's like finding a way that I don't have to like work for somebody else and also Mm -hmm. finding a way to help other people find their own voices and either touch people through the work I make or through or through therapy session or through whatever all these different modalities of therapy experiencing dramatic play all these different things that are helping us to get in touch with with those fleshy bits and those vulnerable bit, vulnerable bits which is where the strength lies yeah amazing amazing <laughs> <laughs> all of it yes yeah so I, I I'm really getting like a huge personal I don't even know what to call it like comfort from this conversation because I felt really drawn to go back to school to become a therapist myself 
And that's what I'm doing. In case I cut out the part where I scream earlier. Maybe I know, yeah. maybe I'm not. I'm just going to make some tape for that just in case. And I was, ha- I've been wrestling with this anxiety of like, I know this connects to the art world. I know it yes. does. And, and when I am having transcendent art experiences, it feels like transcendent therapeutic experiences. They feel yes. like they're getting to the same place, which is what I like to call the problem of being a human. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I just don't know exactly how they're going to kiss. Like, I'm like, how is it? How am I going to make this come together? And, and just finding in you someone who's on the same path. And it feels like you have answered that question. Like, that's just so beautiful to hear that. Like, I really am like having quite an emotional response to it because it really is something that in my own personal locked box of my brain has been a problem I've been trying to solve. And it's a really, it's, it's, it, it feels like there's a, there's a thread throughout what I am drawn to in this world and whether it's Zen Buddhism or artwork mm-hmm. or therapy, poetry, or poetry. Oh my gosh. Mary Oliver, like yes. who we were chatting about earlier, you know, and, and, and we're told that these things have to live separately, but like th- there is this, 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 this through line and, and I'll be in a, a lecture from, a Roshi and it will feel like therapy and I'll be in therapy and it will feel like art and I'll be in art and it will feel like meditation. Like it's all like, it's like, I feel like we're just, I'm, I'm, I'm like sitting in a tree and I'm trying to cut off the branches when I feel like I have to choose, you know? And so it's just really beautiful to hear the ways in which like you, you have found that through line in a, in a, in a really wonderful way to articulate it as well. Yeah. I, I having this discussion with you is like so important for me too, because like I wasn't even sure if I was going to say that mm. on this podcast because because of some of the messages that I've gotten throughout my career that I that we all do that like like real artists like gut it out. Like, oh well yeah, you're only a real yeah, artist yeah. if you like whatever, if you like bartend or if you are an art handler or if you adjunct and do like a part-time like low wage job that you can't if you fucking work at live a, on. If you work at a nonprofit for $35,000 a year. Yeah. Like yeah. fuck that shit. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. Sorry. You can take all, all the F-bombs if, <laughs> if you need to, but like. F-bombs are appropriate in this situation because it's, it, it, it is the, the artist suffering and that's not to say yes. that there's not suffering in art, but but the narrative that you're not doing it right unless you're you're, you're giving up everything else. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I really like thank God for my amazing, beautiful husband, Roman. Like I was really struggling with this a lot. Like when I was applying, I was just like riding the roller coaster of like, this feels right. Like I'm gonna do this. I'm I can do it. Like I know I can build my life to where I have plenty of time for my art practice and plenty of time for therapy to have to be a therapist and live like live a good life or well let's say like have some financial stability yeah and yeah we're not greedy I just life. would like, like health care honestly like, <laughs> and like there were so many and then, then there was these like dark times where I'm just like well this is me giving up like this, mm-hmm. is, this is giving up like I'm not good enough and so like somewhere deep down inside me I know that I'm not good enough and so I'm going to do this thing instead and give up and like Roman, my husband, he's like, there was a couple times where he sat me down. He's like, Julia, you make work every single day. Like every, (laughs) like I'm doing like hours and hours of homework. And then I'm going in my studio and I'm making work. He's like, you're still showing all the time. You're still applying. You're like, you're still doing like, I'm literally about to do a residency. They don't know that I'm a student because like no students allowed or whatever. I'm going to be like secretly doing my homework and then going to my studio. Like, like I'm making it work. And, And he sat me down and he was like, you have more than one talent and it would be bad for the world if you don't pursue this you like yes I mean, Roman yes <laughs> with me saying it but he's like such a beautiful sweet person and uh, yeah and like he really has helped pulled me back and like reminded me like hey like you're multi-dimensional baby you got this <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm really yeah. like the further I'm halfway through my program, the further I get into it, the more I like I'm able to embrace that because I'm like, oh, look, like and sorry, something else that I have to, a lot of thoughts coming up, like something yeah, else yeah. that has happened is that 
since I made that, that, that addition, I don't want to say switch, but since I like pivoted away from adjuncting towards becoming a therapist, like it helped me give up, like I let go of some of these, like what we were saying, like these toxic, toxic narratives about Mm -hmm. being like the struggling artist and like, you're not legitimate if you don't, whatever, if you're not like living on cigarettes and beer and, you know, like whatever, not sleeping. Cause that was like a lot of grad schools, like who can Mm -hmm. not sleep the most? Like, you know, like I have health problems. I can't live like that. Yeah. (laughs) Like once I kind of gave up some of that narrative, things started to open up for me in the art world too. Mm -hmm. Like I like got some really good shows and like sold some work through like good galleries and got these residencies and, and like, I'm getting shortlisted for like these big prizes and stuff that I like wouldn't have imagined even a year ago. And so like that keeps reminding me like kind of going back to this discussion we were having about like following that shame. Like, Mm -hmm. so it was kind of like, okay, well, like the the shame part of that was that maybe I'm a failure and, and that's why I'm doing this. And instead, so I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'm going to go with that. And like, instead it's like, oh no, like not at all. It's the complete opposite. Like look at you expanding your world and now more opportunities are opening up to you. Well, and I think there's something in there for me about like, how limiting identities are yes and and how the more we more we get locked into an identity the less expansive we can be and the more we say you know I am an important person because x y and z I'm an important person because I have these degrees because I have this title because it says gallery director like whatever it is right artist the more we sort of cling to those and the in the Buddhist wheel of suffering and desire, mm-hmm. <laughs> the worse off we are. And so I think this idea of like, I can't go and do this other thing because I am an artist. Like you, you, right. like you're, you're directly experiencing the fruits of letting go of identity as I like, I like identities in the sense of, the labels that we have in this world as identity in the sense of Julia's being with a capital B Mm -hmm. like, and, and, and being able to think that we're what we actually are is so much larger than any identity Mm -hmm. that you can tap into that when you let go of them. Not to, not not if I just lost half the audience with that level of woo, I apologize, (laughs) but (laughs) That's not woo. It's not like we're talking about like crystals and mm. I don't know, whatever, whatever, like perverted capitalist version of spirituality. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like that, th- that's real. That that's, mm-hmm. that's real. Like sometimes I don't even know how to add on to that. Yes. I hear you. Yes. Yeah, that's real. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. And, and I think for, for me, I actually had a breakthrough this weekend when I was talking to a spiritual advisor that thinking about like, okay, I'm in the arts. I've had this fancy job. I've, I've, I've worked in Bangkok. I've worked in Sydney. My life is fancy. And like how much that identity for me was a balm for being an awkward kid that no one liked. I could look at it and I could be like, I could be like, Oh, like check it out. Like I, I must be special because all these things I have done because of these fancy titles I've had because of these fancy dresses from like Bangkok based designers that I'm the only one in Santa Fe with like mm-hmm. all of that again that that like identity drama that that was like this protective shield and I mm-hmm. didn't want to let go of it but then I also was reaching out for the identity of therapist as well like I wanted to like and like and how actually we can't like it's not healthy to do either it's like you it's you can't like if you just sort of let one protective shell of identity subsume with another you're in the same spot you actually have an advance like you're on the treadmill right (laughs) yeah yeah and so it's I, I think that breaking down the the barriers between them which is what you're doing that helps dissolve the identities that come with each one of them. And then you you get to be not the suffering, struggling artist and not the brilliant transcendent therapist. You're you are Julia. 
which is like that's like the best that's the best you could be right like because that is that is your being yeah (laughs) oh that's very very sweet of you and I wanted to just like give you a little virtual hug when you're talking about being an awkward child (laughs) I was listening to another episode of on being them a couple weeks ago and it was an interview with John O'Donohue who Mm. was like yeah like an Irish poet and I think he was a priest for a while and he's like, there's a line in this interview where he talks about how everybody is an ex-baby, which is like so beautiful, right? Like it's it's so funny and it's so beautiful. And just like the things that we do are like the, the how our personalities are formed and like the paths that we take that are like survival mechanisms, right? You know, and then I guess the work of the work of being an adult is like to embrace that 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 baby that we once were, like the vulnerabilities and in pain and, and all and, and tenderness and preciousness at all. And then sort of like sift through like what 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 of our identity is working for us and what do we need to let go. Yeah. That kind of primal love and stewardship that most people feel when looking at a small human it's like you don't have to play by those rules anymore once that human grows up yes yes that's what i'm trying to get at yeah yeah how can we extend that same tenderness towards ourselves Mm. and thus towards others as well totally totally julia i don't even know where to go from here i feel like we've like we've like just like i feel like we've just done it like like we just like we just had an interview like If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. But if monetary support is not in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friends sent you. But as always, the very, very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Next week, we're kicking off something a little different at Hello Print Friends. We're going to be doing Outlaw October, a month-long feature on outlaw printmakers and a little bit of a deep dive into who they are and what they do. We're going to be starting with Bill Fick in Venezuela and later Saudi Arabia, what makes a cartoon a cartoon? High and lowbrow art and skulls. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.